We all know that food is politics. In gastro-nativism, we look at it in a whole new way. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Fabio Parasecoli. He is a professor of food studies at NYU. He has written many books, but his most recent book is Gastronativism. Welcome, Fabio. Thank you for having me. So before we start talking about gastronativism, I want you to kind of talk a little bit about how your career took you to food, because I don't think that's the way you started. Uh, Definitely not, definitely not. My background is in East Asian studies. I lived in Beijing for a couple of years as a student in the late eighties. And then when I came back to Europe, after my mandatory military service, <laughs> I uh, started doing all sorts of jobs. I worked as an, an interpreter, simultaneous interpreter. But then, oh, oh I did some TV, uh, scripts, uh, stuff like that. But then I found a job in a French news agency. And I realized that that was what I really liked to do. And so I started working as a journalist specializing in international affairs with a focus on Muslim affairs. So I covered Muslim events, let's say from Turkey all the way to the Philippines. And so how did you become interested in Muslim events and and having that as a specialty? Yes, because I realized back then, this were the early 90s, I think something was happening in that world. And then we know it, it you know. did happen. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it did happen. So I went back to school, got another degree in Islamic culture. Uh, I was particularly interested in Islamic law, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. and history, because, you know, uh, that's what I also like. And so for a few years, I did that. I traveled around the world, which I really enjoyed, but, you know, it was also a little dangerous. At the same time, I started also collaborating with an Italian food and wine magazine called Gambero Rosso, which is still around. It's the biggest food media group in Italy. Uh, And since I was traveling all over the place, they asked me to write restaurant reviews for the so-called ethnic restaurants in Italy because they figured out, okay, you know the real thing. You can tell us if this is good or bad. So I started doing that. And, after and you while, were living in Italy at that time? Well, I was living in Italy, but I was traveling, you know, Everywhere. all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, food has always been part of my culture, of course, partly because I'm Italian, but specifically in my family, you know, we spend a lot of time around food, cooking, talking about food. So also when I was doing my uh, politics assignments, 
I was very interested in tasting what people ate and going to markets because I thought that was a way to understand their daily life, which I thought, and I think it's correct, could give me an entryway to better understand the political situation of those places. Sure. I mean, food. culture, food just brings you into everything, yes. And it was also a sensory experience. I still remember the first time I had fish in coconut milk in a village somewhere in the forest in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. It was so intense. I had never tasted something like that. And, you know, and so there was this interest, the fact that I was writing little reviews and then the magazine you know, figured out that I spoke different languages. So they started sending me out for uh, big assignments. So I had France, Spain, England. And then in 98, they decided to ask me to move to New York drop international affairs and work for them full-time as a journalist. So I was their correspondent from the US, but I was also covering basically Canada and the Caribbean. Um, but I also took care of the distribution of the English translations of the magazine, the books. I did the PR, organized wine events. So I was full on part of the New York City food world. Mm -hmm. Um, and somebody who wrote for Gambero Rosso, Leonard Barkin, who at the time was at NYU as a professor, invited me to participate in a, in a seminar that took place regularly at NYU called Feast and Famine. And by the way, it still continues. And that was my first exposure to sort of an academic approach to food. I was like, wow, this is cool. This is interesting. And so I started interacting with them. And then around, I think it was 2003, Marion Nessel, who at the time was the chair of the Department of Food Studies at NYU, asked me if I wanted to teach some classes, of course, as an adjunct professor. I did that and I loved it. I really loved it. And not only I loved teaching, but I also loved you know, doing research from an academic point of view and writing also, you know, academic papers that allowed me a little more reflection than the articles that I was writing for the magazine. So after a while, I decided that maybe it was time for me to go back to school, got my doctorate in Germany, just to keep things simple. Uh, <laughs> and, um, in 2010, the new school hired me to help them organize the food studies program there. And I was there until the end of 2017. And then in 2018, I moved to NYU. So, I mean, it's a little all over the place, but now all these experience also in politics and traveling, I mean, it really helped me writing this last book. So let's let's talk about gastronativism. We've sort of led right to it. Um, what what made you decide to write this? Because at, when I read it, I felt like you had been thinking about this for a very long time, and it probably had just been sort of simmering there for a while. And different experiences made you think of different things. What made you say this is the time to write it? 
You're right. I had been thinking about those issues for a long time. You know, I, I like thinking as a historian, partly doing historical research, but I also studied you know, international affairs and politics and food. So the three things came together. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about a book because I participated and also helped organizers a few conferences here in Europe, uh, in Bologna, in, in Warsaw, that were actually about food and power. And during these conferences, I had so many interesting conversations. And I started, you know, the idea started taking shape in a way. And then, you know, it was also a very interesting period. It was 2019, 2020. So election time, but also in other parts of the world, lots of things were happening. And then while I was almost done, January 6th happened. Yeah. And that really put some fire in me. It's like, yes, this is the right time to write about this topic because we cannot keep on imagining food as this sort of romantic space separated from our daily life, which is also made of political strife. I actually think it's very much integrated. And so that was sort of the inspiration to write this book, which of course I wanted to write for a larger public. I didn't want it to be a book just for academics because I thought these are urgent issues, are important issues. And if this book can give some tools for people to understand what happens around them, well, then I'm happy. Well, I think you did a really great job of making it accessible and not emphasizing political theory that people might not be familiar with. You explain it as though this is all just logical sense and it reads really easily. And I I really appreciate that because sometimes I find political theory ponderous (laughs) and uh, has like almost intentionally ponderous to make things seem a little bit more important than they need to be. Because people, everybody eats and everybody needs to be able to understand a lot of these issues because we do live in a global world. We've seen all of that with the pandemic very recently. And I think that this is very timely because of that. But you, I'm sure you thought of all of those things when you were writing this. (laughs) Yes, I thought, you know, food was also a way through which we experience power and politics in a very intimate, personal way, which is also very communal because food defines who we are as individuals, but also as member of groups. And so I started thinking, okay, how does food plays in, you know, helping us think who is us and who is them? How can it be maybe exploited politically and ideologically because of this power and where does this power come from? So these were sort of some of the background themes uh, in the book. I do want to talk about the actual definitions of gastronativism, but I want to tell you, I I have a book that came out 
a few months ago, and it's my first cookbook. And I am half Sicilian, and I grew up in this sort of Sicilian community in New Orleans, where almost 100,000 Sicilians came from about 1885 to say 1915. There was that 30 year period when tens of thousands, almost 100,000 people came to New Orleans. And what I think is so interesting is that, of course, there's a lot of food identity that comes with that, but it's food identity that's frozen in another time because that was a hundred years ago now and people are still eating that food and, and it's frozen. And Alberto Capati came to New Orleans to study the Muffaletta sandwich. And uh, he and I were talking about this through his wife who was our interpreter. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he kept saying, nobody eats this anymore in Sicily. It's so interesting that it's frozen here. And I thought that that was really, really true because why would you eat this? This is a totally unhealthy thing to eat. And nobody's working in the fields all the time um, where they need or on the wharves or all these things that use up all these calories so you need all of this all of this food and so he was writing he was in new in america going from place to place where there were little pockets of people of italian descent who had some foods that are no longer eaten in italy but that are frozen in america and i thought well you know this is really this is really really interesting. It was interesting to me to be able to talk in my book about how frozen it is and mm -hmm. how it's not Italian anymore. It's what people used to think of as Italian and that that they just kind of held on to that without letting it change. It, it didn't evolve the way a normal cuisine would evolve. Um, so anyway, your book made me think about that as a another way to think about belonging to a group, that frozenness. And, and I discussed the, the relevance of tradition and how tradition is actually a social process. We think of traditions as sort of objects that exist in themselves and we somehow discover and dig out. Well, no, there, there, <laughs> there is a community that somehow identifies some food, some practices, some customs, and gives them a specific relevance for their identity. And so it's a process that turns something that it's daily into something with a very deep symbolic meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why also it becomes frozen in time because changing something that is so important is complicated. Of course, mm -hmm. traditions change all the time, sure. but those are long negotiations within the community. You don't want any, you know, outsiders tell you what's what. So what historians say doesn't count for anything. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not about history. <laughs> right, right. Well, and the, the, the social invention that is culture is something that you almost can't describe it because as soon as you write it down, it's not even true anymore. So it's really kind of interesting, yes. Exactly. Okay, so tell us what gastro-nativism is. 
Well, I was find, trying to find a word to describe this phenomenon. And, you know, just very simply, I think it is the ideological use of food in politics to define who's us and who's them. This is just the, the simplest definition. But I came up with this word because, of course, there's been a lot of research and a lot of interest in looking at how food is involved with politics. So there is work about uh, gastronationalism, gastrodiplomacy, and I discussed that in the book. What I wanted to bring to the attention of the readers is that all these national, local, regional dynamics are part of something much larger. We need to start looking at this at the global level as an effect of globalization and not just globalization. I mean, think about it. The Romans were importing pepper and cinnamon, right? Uh, back in the second century before Christ. But I'm talking about a specific kind of globalizations that has become prevalent from the 80s, thanks to Reagan, thanks to Margaret Thatcher, thanks to, you know, the Washington consensus, the, the international uh, banking system, the World Bank, and the WTO. I mean, in, in a way, the WTO is the expression of this new approach to globalization that then was turned into, into international regulations. Right. Put everything under market. Market, it's what basically is supposed to organize all the aspects of our life, which, you know, some people might find problematic. <laughs> right. Right. And it assumes that we all have the same culture and the all, we all have the same definition of what a market and economy might be. Yes. Yeah. But one of the results of these processes of globalization, as we've seen in the US, for instance, is that there is a growing inequality between the haves and the have-nots. And the haves are, you know, the elitists, the globalists, to use language that we hear now uh, on US media, people who were able to take advantage of these changes because of their social position, their education, there may be lots of reasons. I'm one of them. I mean, I was born in Rome, studied all over the world. Now I'm a professor in the US, so guilty as charged. And you're I, in Rome right now. <laughs> and I'm in Rome right now, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I can afford to come back and forth, but for many people that has meant losing jobs actually seeing their jobs being transferred to other countries or seeing their whole sectors wither because you know the economy changed in other in other ways and this has created a lot of anxiety that it's partly connected with actual loss of status and money and jobs but partly it's really caused by the fear of losing any little scrap of privilege that you might have and it makes sense because if you feel like your world is disappearing or is crumbling down you 
need to cling to something. Mm -hmm. And that's where food comes into play because very often food provides this sort of anchorage, this sort of roots that people can use to say, okay, yes, that's us. And that helps us define who is not us and who's trying to take advantage of the situation and taking advantage of us. When these sort of feelings become widespread, become organized, and then get exploited by politicians, well, that's when you have gastronavivism. And because it's connected with a global transformation, one of the main points in the book is that I want to show that similar dynamics are happening all over the world. It's not just in the US, it's not just in India or in Italy. It's really something that it's happening everywhere. And that's why I was trying to figure out what's going on. Why you know, political movements are using the same language? Why are people embracing the same sort of reactions to these changes and why is food being used uh, in this way? It doesn't matter if it's, you know, meat in India used by Hindu fundamentalists against, you know, Muslims, Muslims. or even, you know, un, you know, Dalit Hindus, or it can be the hamburgers in, in the US, or it can be couscous around the Mediterranean. But suddenly food becomes a very tangible, a very direct way to participate and to express this sort of discontent. So why do you think today it is such a global phenomenon and not more just regional phenomenons? Is that simply because we've kind of moved everything around all over the world so that everybody's being threatened? In a way, yes. Of course, it takes local and regional tones and characteristics. You know, the, the, the specific foods or customs might be different, but the dynamics are the same because this model of globalization is the same all over the world. I mean, and that's why also the resistance to it become globalized. Think about, I don't know, a movement like Slow Food or a more political movement like La Via Campesina, you know, uh, food sovereignty. Think about environmental movements or the anti-GMO movement. Since these changes are happening globally and are basically pushed by entities that sometimes cannot be pinned down to a specific location or a nation, mm -hmm. right? Also, the reaction becomes global. They, you know, if you have to fight a global threat, well, then you have to organize yourself globally as much as possible. I, and I see things like the Chinese in Africa and the changes that that is making to Africa and the sovereignty that China wishes to take advantage of there as, as important as Donald's in the world or whatever. And that the, these are places where perhaps before we may not have seen any activity because 
things there were the same all the time and they're not anymore. No, but I, I think this is not just limited to China in Africa. I no, think no, no, what's no. happening with Russia or, you know, the in interest of the US in Central and South America. I mean, we could open a very, very large parenthesis here. Mm -hmm. But there are this, you know, sort of this, in a way, the attempt of um, creating a global community, but the rules uh, that were imposed by the WTO in the mid 90s now are not being accepted by everybody. And what's happening in Russia, it's a demonstration. Russian is, does not uh, play according to rules that they feel, you know, they were imposed by other interests. So does China. So mm -hmm. what, what's the consequence of that? What's, what's going to happen next? It's hard to tell because, you know, I think in many ways the WTO is losing his, his centrality. Mm -hmm. and, you know, in, in global trade and in, in politics, as a matter of fact. So how do you see the interplay between governments and just the regular people mm. and how they react to uh, gastro-nativism in yeah. different ways? Well, it depends if the governments come out of movements that fight this sort of elitism, globalism. So if a populist movement comes to power, they might have a different approach. Um, see what happened with, with Donald Trump. When he became president, suddenly he started uh, identifying with, you know, fast food and hamburgers and and then after the end of his presidency and if you remember at a certain point you know biden was accused to uh want to take hamburgers away from americans and everybody would have to grill brussels sprouts for the fourth of july uh -huh. so in that case it was a, a populist a reaction movement that was somehow guided and some might say exploited by politicians get to power and then loses power again. In India, this gastro-nativism is embraced by the government that has based its power on a specific form of fundamentalism, of Hindu fundamentalism that was not prevalent until uh, a few years ago. And we see the same thing in governments like Brazil with Bolsonaro in Poland, with Kaczynski um, in Hungary, with uh, Viktor Orban. In a way, many of this, what I call illiberal uh, movements have been using food uh, like this. Taking, you know, sort of the, the idea, the example from movements that are not in power yet. So for instance, the Lega party in Italy or the Marina Le Pen movement in France. Mm -hmm. So of course, this is a changing landscape. It changes all the time. And I was aware of it writing the book, but at the same time, I was like, okay, somehow we need to jump up 
and dare to look from above. You know, just maybe if we get beyond the single trees, you know, the single regions, the single countries, but we try to look at the forests, maybe we can see some, some traces that can help us map what's happening uh, at this specific historical moment. So how do you see the difference between what we've just been talking about and governments trying to say corral people by saying sugar isn't good for you, you shouldn't drink sugary drinks. And there's a there's a health sort of halo that people put on on this, but it's still a form of control of what you eat. It's a form of control, definitely. It's, you know, academics talk of it as biopolitics. It's a, a way for powers to control, you know, individual citizens. But I think this is a connected phenomenon, but it's not the same phenomenon because somehow uh, discussions about health and what's good and what's bad might be determined by class, by ethnicity. So there is some of that, uh-huh. but it doesn't create this sense of community that needs to recognize itself to defend itself against the other. So it's it's a connected phenomenon, but I don't think it's the same. And as a matter of fact, I don't talk about it in the book. Right, I noticed because that. Because of this, uh-huh. because of this, because I don't think it's, it's the same, it's the same thing. There is not the same sort of ideological manipulation to define who belongs and who doesn't. I, I find it particularly interesting to control food that is consumed from a health standpoint when what is healthy is always in flux. <laughs> and so that's something of interest just to me personally, that when are we going to agree that this is healthy and this isn't and whatever, I'm not seeing that happen. Um, And I always love the idea of things that get flipped over like, um, oh, for a long time, coconut oil used in um, popcorn was considered so horrible, then all of a sudden coconut oil was the new oil, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's just always those kinds of um, changes that are happening in what we're learning about health. And I, I find that um, really uh, an interesting aside because I do believe that people who become very invested in this kind of health phenomenon of food, it becomes cultural and they define themselves and others who are like-minded as a group. Um, it's... Um, <laughs> It's, it can it become political. Yeah. Yes, it has the potential to become political. And if it becomes political and it's exploited ideologically, then it can become um, that. You know, think about, you know, people that embrace local food, organic food, you know, in a way they do create an identity mm-hmm. that can be also be exploited ideologically, not only on their side, but also on the sides of those that feel excluded from this. Mm-hmm. 
purpose. It's like, yeah, of course, you know, organic food is for rich people. Uh huh. It's uh -huh. not for us. Right. And that can be exploited politically. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Well, it looks like we have uh, reached the end of our time, Fabio. Um, I really appreciate this conversation. I recommend that everybody go out and get a copy of Gastronativism because it is really, really, first of all, it's not that long of a book, but it really is full of serious ideas for our time that involve food and its use in power. And it's really a fascinating, as you say, look from above at what's happening in our world. It's really very timely. So thank you for writing it well, and for well, making it so you. accessible. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And you know, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.